Good morning. And let's begin with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for you, for your love, for your constancy, for your trustworthiness, for Jesus. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, lead us uh, in the path of everlasting life, that we can represent you faithfully at this time in earth's history. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So one of our online listeners and friends, Kent Johnson, sent me an email this week. I'm going to read to you. It said, here it goes. My sister Kathy Brandon wrote this for a flyer to pass out to people uh, at their church's Christmas booth after parade. She put the thoughts together from what she's been learning from you, Graham, and others uh, in the last few years. And it's called A Baby Solves the Case. God has a court case to solve, and it's not yours or mine. It's his own, Romans 3, 4. He faces a lot of serious accusations. He's either malevolent, unwilling to prevent evil, or impotent, unable to prevent evil prevent evil. Some say that neither option is acceptable, so they conclude God does not exist. Humans were given their tragic start in accusing God long ago by the chief mudslinger, according to Genesis 3. God is restrictive and arbitrary. You can't eat from any tree. God is not trustworthy. God lied to you. You won't die. God is selfish. He's keeping something wonderful from you. Revelation twelve seven unmasks the mudslinger and reveals that he began this slander with angelic beings right at the throne of God. Yes, God has a case of cosmic proportions to resolve. What is the truth about his character? The mudslinger was quite successful in heaven as he, was, as he has been on earth. And because forced obedience only results in rebels, God gives freedom to every being in heaven and earth to decide who to believe. Satan, the mudslinger, fights with force, deceit, and ego. God has been battling the accusations with love, freedom, truth, and a baby. This baby came to give the greatest evidence possible to humanity and to the entire universe that God is trustworthy. Yes, sin does cause death. Not because God will punish, but because sin will separate the created from the life-giving creator. God the Father did not kill God the Son, He withdrew and allowed Jesus to demonstrate the results of the separation that occurs from sin. This baby gave evidence beyond any comprehension that God is not selfish. God became a human baby and then willingly let humans, inspired by the mudslinger, to put him to death on a cross. And this baby gave wonderful evidence that God only restricts to protect us from the damage caused by sin. When the baby grew to manhood, he said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. His whole life was spent in giving life and healing. The jury is still out. This Christmas, let the truth this baby reveals convince you. Wasn't that well done? It's in the notes for anybody who'd like to get that and share it. So before we turn to Lesson 12, I wanted to follow up with one section from last week's lesson. And Tuesday, they asked us to look at Jeremiah 7, 1 through 7. And I wanted to look at Jeremiah 7, 1 through 7. We didn't get to it, so let's do that. Uh, And we'll start with verse 1. It says, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. What is the application for us today as you read these passages? What is the Lord's house? The temple built on earth was a shadow or theater, a teaching tool to the genuine reality. And what material is the genuine temple constructed out of? Built on the apostles with Christ, the chief cornerstone. We are God's temple that he is working to cleanse to prepare us to meet him. Do you, do we see ourselves as messengers of God standing at the gates of the temple to proclaim a message for the world to prepare to meet Jesus at this time in history. Next verses. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do we have a message today of reformation? Does God have a message for people this time to reform? Reform about what? About how we understand God? His law? His government? What righteousness actually is? We are to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and fountains of water. 
And we are to finally leave behind this false imperial Roman system of legal adjustment and imposed penalties and practice the principles of truth, love, and liberty. Verse 4, do we trust the deceptive words that say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord? Do you hear that? Deceptive words. We, we, we do not trust in deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. What is the message for us today? Do not trust in deceptive words. The Sabbath of the Lord, the Sabbath of the Lord. This is the Sabbath of the Lord. Was the message that the temple in Jerusalem was the temple of God a false message, or was it true? Then why did, and, and, and is the message of the Seventh-day Sabbath a false message, or is it true? It's true. Then why did the prophet tell them, don't trust in deceptive words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, if it was the temple of the Lord? And what would make it a false message to say, this is the Sabbath of the Lord, the Sabbath of the Lord? What would make that false? Could it be how the Sabbath or the temple are presented? The Sabbath as a legal requirement of behavioral modification rather than a test of obedience, rather than uh, a gift from God to human beings built into reality by our Creator to bless and benefit us in our, what's it, okay, the Sabbath is a sign that I will sanctify you or make you holy in his plan to make us holy. If we approach the Sabbath like the Jews did, the Sabbath, we have the Sabbath, we have the Sabbath, we have the Sabbath. Through a legal construct, then can we act as the Jews did in rejecting the Savior and get him off the cross to keep the Sabbath? Continue on with the course. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, what is godly justice? Can we get godly justice through more human legislation and government? Notice what the next text says, next verse says. If you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm. Notice it doesn't say if your government doesn't oppress, or if your government passes the right laws, or has good social programs. It doesn't say that. It's about, not about what the government does, it's about what we do in governance of ourselves, and how we live, and how we treat others. And notice also that it describes following other gods as harming oneself. This is the law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. We worship false gods, and our minds are damaged. We embrace the, pre the principles, methods, and practices of those gods, even if we claim we're worshiping Jesus or claim we don't believe in God at all. We're still changed by the process. So if Christians embrace the methods of pursuing righteousness or justice through human governments, laws, mandates, legislation, enforcement, coercion, they're not worshiping Jesus. They're worshiping his enemy. Next verse. Then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. Only those who are actually righteous in heart and mind, those who are reborn to be like Christ, only the meek shall inherit the earth. This is going to be the home for all those who have had this restoration of godliness within. And then verse 8, But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. How many today are distrusting in deceptive words that are worthless? Penal legal adjustments that claim that you're righteous even though you're not righteous. It's a deceptive word. If you don't become the righteousness of God, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. We are to become righteous in heart, mind, motive, attitude, how we treat other people. Not declared righteous while you remain selfish and exploitive and hateful, but you're declared in a book somewhere in a cosmos, in a galaxy far, far away. That's, that's deceptive words. All right, now back to lesson 12. Sunday's lesson asks us to read Matthew 4, 1 through 11. 
and we'll read this from the NIV. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. I always loved to consider that. Did he call an Uber? To think that through. How'd the devil get him there? Let's take him by the hand and they went for a stroll together. He was in the desert. Next thing he's on the temple mount, on the top of the temple, the highest point. Scotty, beam me up and then beam me back down. I mean, some transportation, some trans-teleportation thing happened here. It's really cool to think about, if you think about it, yeah. Anyway, he's not the creator. This wasn't God doing this transportation. This was a, uh, some other being with some other capacities to manipulate space-time in some way that we don't have. I, I anticipate that when the earth is made new and we get all the powers that Adam surrendered when he sinned back as human beings, we'll be able to do that. We won't have to have a, a monorail to get us from, from wherever on this planet to somewhere else. We'll just kind of go step through time and we'll, we'll just be there. It's kind of cool to think about. Eye has not seen nor ear heard. Okay, keeping on with the uh, thing. The Holy Spirit. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, It is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Again, how'd they get there? Okay, so, uh, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Notice, all the kingdoms. He didn't show him 80% of the kingdoms. All the kingdoms of the world operate on Satan's methods. And their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. So, first point I want you to notice, Jesus was led into the wilderness or the desert to be tempted by the devil. Yet we are instructed by Jesus to pray, lead us not into temptation. The Holy Spirit led Jesus out there to be tempted. But he leads us away from temptation. Why? Because Jesus' mission was to confront and overcome Satan and the temptations that he can throw as a human being, using the resources available to human beings in order to restore God's law of love back into the human being, the humanity that he assumed, and destroy the death condition inherited from Adam and restore the eternal life condition that God designed for human beings to have. He had to face, confront, overcome as a human in order to do this. Not only a human, but a human at his weakest. After 40 days of fasting, very weakened, yes. And Jesus became the second Adam, the new head of humanity, the mystical vine that we can be grafted into, and we can receive through faith an infusion. Peter uses these words. We become partakers of the divine nature. We partake. We don't originate. We partake. And so, so we don't win the victory over sin. Get your mind around this. None of us win the victory over sin. We share in the victory that Jesus won. Yes, Russell. But, but doesn't that process of exercising our will to resist temptation, even though it's not in and of ourselves, doesn't that process, doesn't it function the same as it did in Jesus? It, it, it strengthens our capabilities. It, it, it makes us more equipped, better equipped to resist the next time. That's correct. That's correct. So our partaking of it is the process that Jesus um, went through. He was tempted in every point. It's like we are yet without sin. But the difference is we are overcoming habits that he never had. That makes sense. Okay? And so there is that cooperative process, and we get to receive... How do I put it this way? Well, it says Jesus tread the, tread the wide press, wine press... With a lot of help. Do we ever have to do it alone? No, we don't. We always have the benefit of the Holy Spirit helping us. And on the cross, Jesus was 
supported, encouraged, and strengthened, like Stephen. When Stephen's being stoned, heaven opens up, his face radiates, and, and he's being uh, infused with the Holy Spirit that gives him peace and joy while he's being stoned. We could say that, right? That was Jesus' experience on the cross? No. See, the martyrs, if you read the history of the martyrs, are very much like Stephen. They're not alone. The Holy Spirit infuses them and strengthens them and empowers Jesus was abandoned on the cross and, and, and won that victory alone through his trust and faith in his Father. He did not have that benefit. And, and, so, and so there's a difference. We we'll never have to do that. We won't have to tread the wide press alone. This is why Jesus was led to the desert to be tempted, but we pray not to be tempted because he was confronting and overcome for us and we participate and we don't have to um, face all those same temptations. We will face temptations, but we don't have to do it alone. So, and how did he overcome? Well, the lesson states, and this is a quote from the lesson, Jesus didn't argue with Satan or debate with him. He simply quoted scripture because as the word of God, it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, unquote. That's from Hebrews 4.12. Think, just process the dynamics, process the event, process what's going on. First, why, why didn't Jesus argue or debate or discuss with Satan? But Jesus did have a discussion, a debate of sorts, with Nicodemus. He didn't debate or discuss with Satan. He did discuss or debate with Nicodemus. So he didn't. So he didn't want to save Satan. Satan was beyond. Okay. So so let's rephrase it. Rephrase it. Satan had made an eternal choice, and that wasn't going to be altered by anything Jesus said. So Jesus wanted to save Satan too. He would have. So so there was no change in Jesus or God's desire to save Satan, was there? No. No change in His love for Satan. So the change was not in God. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So what you're saying is the change was in Satan. That's exactly right. You destroyed all capability to receive or understand any act of love presented from the Holy Spirit. Exactly right. He was incapable of processing. This is what sin does. When you persist in it long enough, it destroys within the, the individual the faculties that are receptive to truth and love. And so he didn't argue or debate or present truth to Satan because it would have no benefit... No impact at all on Satan, and would have only extended his time being exposed to the assault, the temptation, the harassment. And so Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 6, don't give dogs what is sacred or throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Notice he doesn't say, don't throw your refuse to the pigs. He says, don't throw your pearls, your pearls of wisdom, your pearls of truth. When you discern that you're dealing with somebody whose heart is closed to truth, they are not interested in actually understanding truth. They want to take something you're going to say, and they're going to twist it and use it against you, very much like you see in the modern media today. You see it all the time. Don't engage them. And you see Jesus didn't engage Herod. He didn't engage Pilate after Pilate closed his mind. He did briefly when Pilate was open, and then as soon as Pilate shut down, he stopped engaging. The second point to, uh, to learn from this is a little subtler point, and that has to do with the using of Scripture. The lesson quotes Hebrews and suggests that Jesus used Scripture because, here because it's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. But when the Scripture is described as that way, living and active and sharper than two-edged sword, severing bone to marrow, what, what is it describing it's doing? What's its function there? Surgery. What, but surgery, physical surgery? But it's analogous. Spiritual surgery. Spiritual surgery where you have a sharp knife and you go in to take out the... Worst part of the bad part of this being to save the being. Okay, so circumcision, cutting away. Cutting away sin. Cutting away sin, okay. So, no, you're exactly right. That's exactly right. Who can it be used on? People who are open. Oh, there you go. The word can only effectively cut 
into the heart and separate people who are still sensitive to truth. People have destroyed the faculties. The word is still true. But if they won't take the truth... So was Jesus using the word here as a two-edged sword in order to cut sin out of Satan's heart? Is that what he was doing? Uh, I'm going to quote the word so I can circumcise Satan's heart and free him from sin. It's a little subtler point. I don't think Jesus is using the word here in the way that Hebrews was referring to it as cutting away the, the sin from our lives, which is exactly what it's designed to do. Satan used scripture as well. And Satan quoted scripture as well. And it wasn't uh, to cut sin out of Jesus' heart either. It was actually to trap him into sin. Could Jesus have resisted Satan's temptations like he did Pilate and Herod by simply remaining silent and not even speaking? Could he have done that? Or was it not possible? He had to quote the scripture in order to be able not to fall into sin. He could have just remained silent, not engaged him, couldn't he? So he quoted scripture, though. But it wasn't for Satan's benefit. It wasn't to help convince Satan, win Satan, convert Satan, sever sin in Satan's heart. Well, then, then who, but who, who else was there? So who was the quoting of the scripture for? I will go with that. He was tempted in all ports like we are, it says. Have you ever been in a circumstance that you were being tempted and you quoted Scripture to yourself? Did it help you? Did it encourage you? So quoting the Scripture could have been to reinforce for his own humanity. Were there angels watching what was going on, heavenly beings watching? And so could the quoting of the Scripture have been for them? And then for all of us, you've already said, through the ages who've read this. So these quoting of Scripture was not intended uh, for Satan. Wendell, yes. This goes back to the whole point of the whole story being in the text. I mean, who was there? Satan, he's not going to report it. Christ, we don't know that he reported it to his disciples, but someone, you know, how did they get a copy of this? So it was reported basically for someone else. It wasn't for Christ or for, the, for Satan's benefit. The whole story is there. For us. For us. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, yes. Uh, and in Revelation um, 19, uh, starting at verse, uh, you know, the white horse verse at 11, uh, standing open, and I saw heaven standing open, there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True, with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and... On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horse and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. You said we were talking about the use of this sword in, in Revelation. We think, you know, it's easy to read Revelation and think real sword. Out of this writer's mouth comes a sharp sword that strikes down the nations. Yeah, it's the words of truth that he speaks. And the truth cuts through all their lies and exposes the falsehood and it strikes down their entire false uh, uh, system. Uh, in the back, yeah. I think you're right when you're suggesting that because the text says all things in heaven and on earth are reconciled to God at the cross. Yeah. They have a vested interest in this as well. So Jesus quoting scripture is not pulling out the sword of truth to enter into a duel with Satan. That's not what he's doing. He's not dueling him. Swords of truth and swords of lies. He's pulling it out for this witness and to, uh, and to demonstrate to the onlooking universe the eternal truths of, of God's kingdom. What does it mean you shall not tempt the Lord your God? When Jesus said, you, will not, you should not tempt the Lord your God after, you know, he says, throw yourself down. Well, I will read you my paraphrase out of, the, out of the remedy, see what you think. This is how I, I paraphrase and expanded that idea. Don't test God to provide miracles when he has already provided overwhelming evidence upon which to base one's belief and no one's duty. I've had actual patients tell me they, that they, uh, they were praying whether it was with God's will for them to have an affair on their spouse or not. Do they need to pray to ask the answer to that question? That's already been revealed. They were asking for a sign. God's not going to give a sign for that. These are the types of things that's a tempting of the Lord. Why would you tempt? You already know the answer. 
There's another lesson here too, though. Did Jesus have a copy of the scriptures with him out there in the wilderness? Then how was he able to quote scripture? Ah, yeah, there's a lesson in that. If we don't study, memorize, and understand scripture before we face temptation, before we face the, the trials, we won't be equipped with the truths, not the quotation, with the truths that the scripture quotation reveals. It's those truths into the heart that protect us. And if we don't know those truths, then we won't be able to access those truths when the lies are presented. We're more vulnerable to deception. So it's a, that's an important point. All right, Monday's lesson, uh, Deuteronomy ten seventeen through 19, asks us to look at Let's back up to verse 12 and go through 12 down through 19. It says, And now, O Israel, what the Lord... What does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees I am giving you today for your own good. Does the Lord ask anything different from us? To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, to love him with all your heart. Does he ask anything different from us? And what does it mean to fear the Lord? Respect, admire, be in awe of, revere. That's what I mean. Not be terrorized of. No. What does it mean to walk in his ways? Follow his laws. Yes, to follow to practice his methods in how we live our life. What has the Lord commanded of us and how do we love him? Does the Lord's commands have something to do with the methods and principles we embrace and practice in governance of self? Does it have something to do with that? Would that include how we maintain our health? What we choose to eat? What we choose to drink? What we choose to smoke? Would this be part of honoring the Lord? How about what we choose to inject into our body? Would that be part of honoring the Lord? What about how we treat others? Are we to live out God's law in how we treat others? Why would we want to live out God's law? If we don't, do we get in legal trouble with God? Or does something actually happen damaging to us when we break God's law? The next verse, 14. The Lord your God belong, the Lord, excuse me, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. What's being established by this statement? He's the creator. That's correct. Why does creation belong to him? He made it and sustains it. All things are sustained, connected, held together. God only built it, but all reality is sustained because God is constantly dispersing from himself energies that maintain it all. To be separate from God is to be cut off from life. Next verse. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all nations as it is today. The point being made? God's creator. All things are, are his. But even though this universe is so immense, and if you ever have looked at some astronomy data, this universe is so immense, it's really beyond all or any of our capacity to really comprehend. What we can comprehend is, wow, that's beyond my capacity to comprehend. I can't process that much information. It's just out. I mean, if you just try to look at the number of galaxies, not even the number of stars, it's beyond comprehension. We really, we can hear numbers. That we, can't, we, can't, we can't process that. And this universe, that big, God cares about you individually. We're important to him. We're made in his image. We're his image bearers. It's unbelievable. And this is what he's trying to say. That we are individuals that were created by him, for him, for a purpose. We are not a constellation of molecules that randomly organized themselves over eons of time and rose up out of slime. That is not who we are. We matter. Uh, verse 16. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Do you, what does it mean to have a stiff neck? 
What, what can a stiff neck not do? Turn. It cannot turn. So, so if you have a stiff neck, think about your vision. If your neck is stiff, what kind of a visual feel do you have? Exactly. Stiff-necked people have a certain view of the world. And that view they're very rigidly attached to. Truths that come in that would lead them to an expanded view or maybe even a different view that's actually more accurate to God's reality, they don't want to look at. They don't want to turn. They don't want to consider. They don't want to assess. See, a person who is not stiff-necked doesn't mean they have a, 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 a completely flaccid neck that goes any old place. A person with a neck that can, you'll look and you will be able to assess what's being said, and you evaluate it in the light of God's truths, and you go, oh, that is healthy. You know what? I'm going to incorporate it. Oh, that actually is not. I'm going to reject that. But a stiff-necked person can't do that. A stiff-necked person are people who are rigid. They're often religious. And they're often unkind. Intolerant. And that doesn't mean, when I say religious, it doesn't actually mean belonging to a denomination. You will see a lot of religious stiff-necked people in the world today who claim there's no God. Their religion is evolution. Or their religion is greenism, save the planet. Or something else. But, but, but they're very stiff-necked. And they are not reasonable people. Circumcise your heart. What does this mean? Cut away from your heart the things that, are, that attach your affections, your longings, your, your passions to worldly and ungodly things. Attach your affections and your heart to the godly things. And this comes back then to what we said earlier about the word of truth, a two-edged sword. It is truth that we not just hear, not even just understand. Remember the devils believe God, but they tremble. They understand the truth of who God is, but they don't internalize and apply truth. It's bringing the truth in and choosing it and the Holy Spirit then empowers and cuts away our affections and attachments to things of this world. I'm not going to read this. This I've ages quote in the notes from 671, but I got a more I want to get through. Verse 17. Uh, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Big point here. Big point. (laughs) He's not bribed by his son's blood. That's a classic. Get the right blood, you get the pay, payment made, and God won't kill you. Yeah, that's a classic Christian bribe. No, the, the, the big point, which, which is still based on the big point, what kind of law is subject to partiality and bribes? Imposed law, the laws that humans make up. That's the kind of, requires an external authority to enforce it. Then you can arbitrarily enforce it, enforce on some, not on others, let your friends go, take a bribe, all this kind of stuff. But design law, and by the way, imposed law is always, in every case, applied with partiality. All governments, all laws passed, So when you see at the Supreme Court, equal justice under the law, that's a a beautiful ideal. It has never happened. Do you actually think certain people in our society are held to the same standard as the rest of us? I won't mention any since people think I'm being political. But, but there, are, there are crimes that have been documented in the public sphere and domain against certain individuals that have held major offices in this country, and they will never be charged, and they will never be prosecuted. Equal justice under the law. No, it's partial. All governments apply human laws partially. They always do. But design law can never be applied partially. It's how reality works. And I've given this example before. But you have a, oh, somebody, um, 
I say an Ethiopian or somebody from Sudan and somebody from Norway, and they stand in the Miami sun with no sunscreen for 10 hours. Does the sun treat them differently? I heard some yeses. The sun does not treat them differently. Their skin and the amount of melanin in their skin react differently to the sun, but they both get the same dose of radiation. The sun is constant. What's different is them. They're different. God's laws are constant, but what we see are differences in how people are affected because of the differences in them. Those who are living in harmony, those who are breaking... Okay, that has a different consequence depending on who you are. But the laws never change. They're just constants. That's how reality works. I like this one. If a uh, Muslim, Jew, and Christian all jump off the Empire State Building, does gravity treat them differently? No. No. Gravity is the same. This is a design law. All right, next, next verse. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourself are aliens in Egypt. This is the outworking of God's law. To love others, which cannot be done through legislation. You understand when you pass a law in a society that taxes somebody and then uses that money to help somebody in need... The person whose money was taxed and taken is not actually loving the person who's being helped. There, you've, you've, you, there's no love going on there. Love has been broken by the, and this is what, this is what human government is, what Satan's goal is. To love somebody means you have to actually interact with them. And I'm not diminishing that people have needs in our society. And I'm not diminishing, uh, but I'm, I'm just telling you, human governments cannot love. And the more we depend on the human government to do what the, the people of God are to do, the more we undermine love in society. Further, because all human laws are applied partially, the more of these programs, government programs, that claim to be interested in helping actually end up becoming means, mechanisms, and gambits for more power for the government. That's what they end up being, more power for the government. Tuesday's lesson. Asked to read Galatians 3, 1 through 14. Hmm, boy. Should I read that? Pardon? Yes? Okay. All right, this is from the remedy. You foolish Galatians, who has clouded your minds and confused your thinking such that you would prefer lies to the truth? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified and as the only remedy to our sin-infected minds. I would like to know just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit of love and truth and experience his healing power by practicing rituals and observing rules? Or was it by understanding and believing the truth that you heard? Are you really so foolish that you think that after experiencing the healing power of the Spirit, which came by trust alone, you can now complete the healing process by your own effort without the Spirit? Have you really gone so far in your treatment course for nothing? And it will be for nothing if you persist in trying to heal yourselves. Is it because you observe a set of rules that God enlightens your mind with his spirit and miraculously transforms your characters? Or is it because you have been one to trust by the evidence Jesus revealed? Consider Abraham. He trusted God and his trust was recognized as righteousness. The distrust caused through Satan's lies has been removed and through trust he was endowed with a new heart, right motives, and Christ-like principles. Be clear on this. All who trust God as he did experience the same transformation of character and are considered children of Abraham. The scriptures foretold that God would set the Gentiles right with himself by trust, just like Abraham, and announce this incredible good news to Abraham. All nations, peoples, and ethnic groups will be blessed through you. So those who trust God experience healing of heart and mind, just like Abraham, who trusted God. 
All who try to get well and experience unity with God by observing certain rituals or following a written script or obeying a set of rules are abandoned to their own fate. For it is written, abandoned to their own choice is everyone who fails in the slightest to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is healed and set right with God by working to follow a set of rules because those set right with God live by trust. The, the written law as applied by the Jews, is not based on trust. On the contrary, it is based on individual performance and attempt to heal oneself, as it is written. The one who works to save self will live in fear and only get worse. Christ saved us from where the law leaves us, diagnosed as terminal and abandoned to die, by being himself abandoned on the cross in order to restore us to trust and to purge humanity from the infection of selfishness and death. For it is written, Abandoned to die is everyone who's hung on a tree. He saved us from the futile, self-focused work system in order that the blessing of love, life, and freedom given to Abraham might come to Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by trust we might receive full enlightenment, renewal, and regeneration of heart and mind that comes by the Spirit. Questions? But if you jump to the end of that very uh, chapter, so the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. And so people take that to be, we don't need law now, because we have grace. And what this is saying is the law led you to Christ, he's the one that heals you, so you no longer need to be led to Christ, you need to take the remedy that comes from Christ. So the law functions here in Galatians as a diagnostic instrument, like an MRI. And you go into the MRI when you've, you're sick with something, maybe you've got cancer, and the MRI exposes the cancer. Once you've gone to the physician and had the cancer put into remission, you have no cancer anymore. There's no purpose or need for the law. So the written law is no longer needed for those who have the law written in the heart and mind because we're no longer out of harmony with the law. And the purpose of the written law was diagnostically to expose where we're not well and, that's, and then lead us to the physician for healing. So thank you for that. Uh, third paragraph um, says, Paul, Paul's point is that we are not saved by the works of the law, but by Christ's death in our behalf, which is credited to us by faith. Credited to us by faith. His emphasis here is on what Christ has done for us at the cross. To help make the point, he refers back to Deuteronomy again, uh, Deuteronomy 21-23. Like Jesus, Paul says, it is written, showing that the authority of the Old Testament is now uh, and now he quotes from the text. So, this idea, it's credited to us. You notice in the remedy, I don't have that. I have it as recognized as. Recognized, reckoned, recognized. When the carnal heart, which is enmity to God and doesn't trust God, is one to trust and surrenders, there's a change of heart. The heart is changed from untrusting to trusting. That is, and God recognizes that that change has occurred. He's reckoned it. He's, he sees it because it's real. The change happens in our, and then through once you open and trust, then when you trust God, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins the transforming, cleansing, and healing work. So let me ask you a few questions. Can a person dying of cancer be saved from cancer by another person dying from cancer and having their death registered in the death registry credited to them? Okay, that's kind of what the penal legal model teaches, or another way to say it. What about this? Can a person dying from cancer be saved from cancer by another person getting cancer treatment, having their cancer go into remission, and then having the medical records of the healed person placed in the medical record of the terminal person and declaring them that they are now declared to be cancer-free? Will that save them from cancer? That's penal legal substitution, folks. It is a complete fraud. It is a lie. It's a scam to make people believe that in the records of heaven, God sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus applied into your record book, and you're declared to be righteous, cancer-free, sin and remission, even though you're completely still corrupt with sin and unrighteous. It's a big scam that keeps people stuck in sinful living while they have a false security that it's all legally accounted for. Sinfulness is a condition that because of Adam's sin we are born with and did not choose. Thus we are born, get your mind around this, we are born terminal, not legally guilty. 
Every human being born since Adam is born with a condition that we did not choose. None of you chose an act that put you into legal trouble. Therefore, we individually are not in some legal situation of our making. We are in a sin-sick situation of our birth. The carnal condition is what causes acts of sin and results in death. James 1.15, Galatians 6.8. The acts of sin are symptoms of the condition, not the cause of the condition. In all of us. Adam and Eve had the ability in Eden to choose to act righteously and create or develop, if you will, a righteous, sinless character. They chose to distrust God, believe lies, and act in rebellion, and they developed a sinful or rebellious character. We are born now with a nature driven by fear and self-centeredness that we did not choose. That's a condition that results in all of us choosing acts of sin until we are reborn with a new heart and right spirit. Now the new heart and right spirit gives us the power to make new choices And everyone who's walked the journey, haven't you made choices that are different than the choices you made before? You've said no to temptations that you used to engage in. Where did the power come? The wisdom come? That is not simply you and your human might doing that. That is a transforming work of the Holy Spirit working in you. Yes? A couple of weeks ago, the quarterly suggested that we had offended God. So in my mind, they've got that wrong by using that word, considering what you just said. We have not offended God. He's not offended by what we do. No, uh, it, with the one exception, to keep our metaphor of a, of a terminal condition. You have a child, grandchild, born with some terminal condition. HIV-infected man, HIV-infected woman get together and baby born HIV-infected. Baby didn't do anything wrong. It's got a condition. It'll lead to symptoms and death if not treated. Your child is old enough, your grandchild, child's old enough to understand reality and make their own choices. And you have a treatment that will cure them. And that treatment also costs you a lot. You know, I can't give a metaphor for the death of Christ and, the, and, the, and that cost to the Godhead. But, but it costs you quite a bit. to But it will save them. It will heal them. And they won't take it. That is offensive in the sense of your, your heart for them. You're offended by their rejection of what would help and save them. Not as a personal offense. But you're, it's off-putting. It breaks your heart. Does that make sense? General rule, though, you said we're born terminal. Yep. So there, if we're born terminal, there's no way we have offended God just by being in this position. No, that's correct. That's correct. What he, what he gets upset about, if you want to call anger, and, and you can read this in, in Hebrews and in, in the remedy, I describe this anger that God has. He's angry like you'd be angry if your child would not take a medicine that would, that was free and that would cure them. And they insisted and refused on it and they got worse and worse. You're not angry at the child per se, you're just angry at their choice because it's killing them. And that's God's anger. He hates, and that's why he was angry at the people in the wilderness it describes. Because they were, they wouldn't uh, embrace him, and they kept going after the, the false gods that were destroying them. And he hates the consequence of what those choices do. Um, the plan of salvation is God's intervention to eradicate the death condition and replace it with God's eternal life condition. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is He wants to eradicate the death condition, the sin condition, and replace it with the eternal life condition that we find in Christ. This requires that God's law, which is the law that life is built to operate upon, be written upon the hearts and minds, Hebrews 8.10. We are unable to do this. This is what Christ came to do for us, to be the remedy to our condition, to eradicate the carnal nature and replace it with a divine nature. We become partakers of the divine nature. So those who enter in a faith relation with Jesus die to the old person, the carnal nature, receive via the Holy Spirit, a new heart and right spirit. We receive a new nature. As Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Note, the Bible does not teach the following. 
I have been declared to be crucified with Christ. It is declared that Christ lives in me. It is accounted that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Christ became sin for us so that we could be declared the righteousness of God. The Bible doesn't teach this. We are transformed. We become renewed in Jesus Christ. It is the reality of the gospel message that we can be freed from the control of fear. Perfect love casts out all fear in your record books in heaven. No, in your heart. Revelation 12, the final people that are alive to be translated, these are they who have been declared not to love their life so much as a shrink. No, these are they who do not love their life so much as a shrink. It's transformational. It's real. It's healing. It doesn't say these are they who are not tempted with fear. But their love for God and others overcomes the temptations. They don't give in to the fear. Yes. I would say when I uh, considered the forensic model, the, the legal penal model, to be the norm, I also I didn't believe in the, the what you call the rotten candy, the candy coated rotten apple theory. I, I I didn't believe in that. I, I, even though I believed in the forensic thing, and that hide and that the son is hiding us from the father, and and he pleads the blood. Even when I believed that, I also believed that he was literally changing us too. And I would venture to guess that the majority of mature Christians, relatively mature Christians, who buy into the forensic model, that, 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 that um, written law, um, or rather the um, imposed law approach, I would guess a number of them, or the majority, also the God's change. But then you have this cognitive dissonance where, on the one hand, there's hiding, there's books being played with, but at the same time, he's changing it. So I know I used to believe that two things were happening that he was covering us now so the father won't see us, he see the son, and at the same time changing us. Yeah, and they would call that... That causes us to... People who believe that, they have a hard time hearing when you tell them no. So they use Latin words to describe those two phases that you described. The first phase, justification, and the second phase, sanctification. So first phase, and they will tell you that the first phase, justification, is the legal declaration of your righteousness, even though you're unrighteous. And sanctification is the process of healing or restoring righteousness in you. Um, so if you look in the New Testament, those, those words don't exist. Those words are translated words, but, but th- th- those words that we, we use, justification, sanctification, are Latin words, or English words based on Latin, which is very penal, forensic, and legal. Um, other newer translations have done a better job. Justification simply means setting right. When you justify the margin on your Word document, what are you doing? Well, I'm declaring it to be in position even though it's not. Or if you justify the margin, do you make a legal declaration? Do you actually move the margin? In order to justify it, don't you have to move those things that are line in line? Okay? So justification is not declaring us legally righteous in heaven. It's actually moving our hearts from an untrusting enmity position to a trusting position. That's what justification is. If that heart hasn't been changed to trust from distrust, it's not justified. And only in trust, then, do you receive the indwelling spirit and cooperate with the spirit for the transforming or sanctifying or healing process. So in reality, I don't see them as two, two separate things. They're really the same process, winning us to trust and then fixing the damage. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. So I appreciate you saying that because I, I'm going to think more on that because um, I, you're right. Some people could hear what I'm saying and suggesting that the other model doesn't teach a transforming process. But the other model obstructs the transforming process because what they will tell you, and I've had conversations with um, you know, doctoral degree theologians teaching in religious universities in the community, and they will tell you, and they've told me, that justification is being declared um, righteous when you remain unrighteous. That's their view. It's actually been in the quarterly in the last year. We've seen the very same thing. I disagree with that. I think righteousness is, is not about um, perfect performance or task um, manipulation. It is about an attitude of trust and love for the Lord uh, that we have. So, yes, question somewhere else. Yes. Yeah, I just think when you believe that Jesus is doing all this legal work in heaven for you, you don't feel like he can do anything for you here now. 
in your heart, you don't believe that God can transform your heart. So you don't accept it. You just trust in Him to do everything for you. And He says, I've come to give you life eternal now, right here and now. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. And, and if we consider the records in heaven, uh, along the lines of medical records rather than legal records, you have a much better understanding of what's recorded there. What gets recorded in a medical record, if it's an accurate and not fraudulent record, is what's actually the condition of the patient. If the patient, uh, if you want something recorded in the, in the record, then it has to happen in the patient. They have to have a high blood pressure. They have to have a high temperature. They have to have a, 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 an ice pack put on them to cool them. And you document that that's happened to them. The treat, In other words, nothing goes in the record until it happens in the patient first. And the heavenly records only record the reality of what's happening in us. So what's recorded in the heavenly records, if you look through Scripture, it always says the names are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. Names in Scripture are character. And so the records are simply records of the character you're developing here on earth through the work of the Holy Spirit and cooperating with it. It's just recording reality of who we are. That's what's there. Very simple. Uh, But when we make it legal, then it's about deeds. It's about some external process happening away from us. And, and it's very corrupt when you go that direction. I want to close with this. Uh, Wednesday's lesson, Deuteronomy, asks us to look at Deuteronomy 18.12, uh, practices that were considered an abomination to the Lord. Uh, and, it, uh, and it reads um, 9 through 13, the practices were the following. It says, when you come to the land which your Lord, your God, is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all these things are an abomination to the Lord, um, and so forth. Okay? When you hear that word abomination, does abomination that causes desolation pop into your mind? Why were these things an abomination? Because they caused it. They do cause desolation, but why? How? What's the mechanism? What's the means? I want you to understand very clearly. They they can alter your appearance of God, no question about that. This is spiritualism. All these are spiritualism. Yes, different forms of spiritualism. What is the root of spiritualism? It is the pursuit of knowledge without the use of reason or the investigation of truth and evidence. When you go to a fortune teller, what do you want? When you go to a palm reader, what do you want? When you go to a tarot card reader, what do you want? When you read your horoscope, what do you want? All these things are wanting some knowledge. I want knowledge. I want information. When you speak to the dead and call the dead back, what do you want? All these things are about forming knowledge, pursuing knowledge, but not using, come let us reason together, or investigating truth and evidence. See, God has all truth on his side. Satan has no truth on his side. So pursuing these patterns or methods of trying to get knowledge damages your reason, damages the faculty, makes you surrender thinking to some magical, mystical, wonder, sign, authority, somebody in a robe, somebody sprinkling water, some smoke-filled room, some weird thing uh, that makes you feel something off or wonderful, uh, some, some shroom that you take in your service in the smoke hut. Okay? It's designed to shut down thinking. Damage the spirit temple. When you have truth on your side, you want the most clear, accurate minds working. You want discernment. Those who are godly have developed by practice the ability to discern right from wrong, Hebrews 5.14. You want to exercise those abilities. All these things suspend those abilities in law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. Because if you don't use it, you... So spiritualism destroys by lack of exercise and exercising false attitudes and beliefs. It destroys the faculty of discernment and makes us vulnerable to deceit. It's an abomination. It corrupts the spirit temple. This is its purpose. I'm going to leave there because we're out of time. But think of the same mechanisms happening in Christianity. Pursuit of knowledge without investigation of evidence or use of reason. Just have faith. Don't ask questions. Just believe. Pray for a miracle or a sign. Pray for a good feeling inside from the Holy Spirit. But don't investigate, don't think, don't reason. These are subtle forms of spiritualism.
certain forms of meditation. It's all designed to shut down the faculties that, that the Holy Spirit enters with truth. He's the spirit of truth. That's why this is an abomination. If you grieve the Holy Spirit, and you grieve the Holy Spirit by rejecting the methods, principles of the Holy Spirit, truth and love, the Holy Spirit can't reach you in other mechanisms. He reaches us through truth and love. And if you shut yourself off, there's nothing to be done for you. And that's why this is an abomination. And it's an abomination that desolates God's people. And we want to reject that. Our Holy Spirit. Uh, dear, dear Father in heaven, we ask for your Holy Spirit. We ask for the enlightenment of truth and the transformation of love. Give us wisdom to discern. Give us grace in presenting your truth. And give us wisdom to know who to share it with and, and when to remain silent. May you come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.